The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your host CJ Walk is up next. Good morning and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is CJ Walk and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. right here on WERU. So today for our April show, April 2017, uh, we are going to be talking about organic blueberry production here in the state of Maine. And so I have a few guests in the studio with me today, and um, I'd like to take a minute to introduce each of them, and then we'll kind of come back around and ask each each of our guests to speak a little bit about the work uh, that they do with blueberries. So... Here in the studio today, uh, we have Nicholas Lindholm from the Blue Hill Berry Company in Penobscot. Nicholas, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thanks, CJ. And then also in the studio is Teresa Gaffney from Highland Organics in Stockton Springs. Hi, CJ. Thanks for being here, Teresa. And then, excuse me, on the telephone, we have uh, two guests on the phone. We have Frank Drummond, who is the professor of insect ecology and insect pest management at the University of Maine and a blueberry pollination specialist with uh, UMaine Extension. So, Frank, thank you for being here this morning. Hi. And um, and also with Frank there in the office is David Yarborough, who is the professor of horticulture at UMaine and the blueberry specialist with Extension. So, thank Hi, you. Thank Glad you, to be here. Okay, thank you for being here, both Dave and Frank, on the phone. Um, and we will look to open up phone lines about halfway through the show today, around 10.30, and at that time I'll give out the call-in number. Um, so again, we're talking about organic blueberry production here in the state of Maine um, with our guests, and I'd like to come back around and start with Nicholas Lindholm of Blue Hill Berry Company and just speak a little bit, Nicholas, about, about your farm. Yeah, sure. Uh, my wife and I run the Blue Hill Berry Company. We're a MOFCA-certified organic wild blueberry producer. We moved to the Blue Hill area back in 1996, having purchased a 50-acre piece of farmland on which there was about 20 acres of wild blueberry field. I had spent a oh, good 10 years training as an organic vegetable grower, knew nothing about wild blueberries, so really just dove into it um, and so are now 20 years into it and uh, have grown to uh, basically not grow any vegetables anymore and just focus on the organic wild blueberries. We now own and lease about 80 acres in the Blue Hill Peninsula um, and market our blueberries both direct in the summer fresh as well as frozen and are developing lots of different uh, value-added products, which we can speak to later. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you, Nicholas. And then Teresa from Highland Organics, Stockton Springs. Yeah, so um, my husband and I, we live in Stockton Springs. We have about 100 acres. Uh, When he and I married in 1999, I, um, without even really thinking about it, said, oh, I can manage these blueberry fields, and I had never done it before. So um, that year we, um, with my five kids and and, uh, 
um, or our five kids and my father, we started managing about 25 acres of organic wild main blueberries. And um, from there, we just um, found out who all the key people are in the blueberry industry and tried to really learn as much as we possibly could about um, growing our fruit organically. And so we began the transition in 1999, and mm-hmm. 2002 we became certified organic by Mofka. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we, you know, started with, like most folks, doing a fresh market and doing a wholesale market and doing some freezing, and now we primarily focus on a value-added product of uh, – of our blueberry tea, where we also harvest our blueberry leaves in the fall, and um, and we also um, dehydrate blueberry fruit to make uh, powders and sprinkles and chips. So okay, all right, great, thank you, Teresa. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think we'll jump to our guests on the phone. Um, and I think maybe uh, Frank and Dave, if you guys just want to take a turn each to speak a little bit about the work you do uh, specific with blueberries, that would be great. Okay, Frank, Frank's going to go first here. Okay. I'm all set? Yes, you're all set, Frank. Go ahead. This is <laughs> Frank Drummond from, from UMaine here on the phone. Okay. You're going to have to excuse us a little bit. We're switching back with earbuds and phone. But um, So I, I moved to Maine uh, as a faculty member at the University of Maine in... Uh, 1989, and we moved to Winneport, Maine, and there was a large blueberry field that the town owns that abuts our our property, and I fell in love with wild blueberries right away, and and I'm still very much in love with this natural plant that is an understory plant that when the forest is removed, we can cultivate it and produce this, this lovely fruit. And so my interest has been uh, from looking at uh, insect pests of wild blueberry and trying to come up with uh, various uh, controls using sort of what we know about their behavior and their ecology, but then also uh, other management tactics such as insecticides to control them. But another big area that I'm interested in is pollination, and I'm very interested in the wild bee community in uh, wild blueberries and then also in the plant reproductive biology because they're a very, very interesting plant where some plants can reproduce with themselves and other plants have to uh, receive pollen from other individuals in the field. And I've also been looking at uh, pathogens, uh, human pathogens such as E. coli, um, and salmonella um, and natural agents such as dung beetles that um, sort of uh, relieve the pathogen stress in wild blueberries. Um, I first sort of got involved in organic production actually at Highland Farms. I think before it was actually Highland Farms in the mid-1990s, I was looking at bumblebees as pollinators. And, uh, and I've worked with Nicholas and, and several other organic growers and then in the early 2000s, about 2004, myself and Dave Yarborough and Shauna Annis and Jack Smogula um, were able to get some USDA funding to study organic production. 
and the Wild Blueberry Commission and MOFCA also helped support this project. And that really was the beginning of um, a long journey looking at organic production and tactics for producing blueberries. So with that, I'll hand you over to Dave Yarborough. Okay. All right. Thank you, Frank, for that for that introduction and background. And then we're going to hear from uh, Dave Yarborough, who's also up at the University of Maine and, and working with Extension on blueberries. Yes, I, I, um, I have a split appointment. I work uh, both with the growers in Extension and also have a, uh appointment in the School of Food and Agriculture where my major emphasis in uh, blueberry production is looking at uh, at weeds and certainly Weeds are a major uh, limiting factor in yields in wild blueberry fields, both in organic and conventional systems. I uh, Actually, I started as a summer student uh, working in blueberry fields in 1975 and uh, then did my master's uh, in Maine doing uh, blueberry work on weed control. Um, I worked as a research scientist at, at UMaine uh, in, in wild blueberries evaluating uh, Different chemical and cultural practices uh, to to uh, limit weeds, uh, and then in 1991, um, uh, well, I, I did take a, a brief sabbatical to to work on a PhD at UMass, uh, so I could qualify for the uh, extension job. Uh, I received my degree in ni- 1991, and the job opened up uh, for uh, blueberry specialist at the University of Maine, and. Um, been doing that ever since, uh, so I've got about uh, 38 years uh, working uh, with uh, wild blueberry growers in their fields, and also working uh, working with individuals and and uh, presenting uh, an educational program. Major thrust of, of, of the educational program is uh, integrated uh, integrated crop management, uh, and 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 that's looking at various. Um, Inputs, uh, cultural and chemical inputs. Um, I might mention uh, the the origin of the uh, involvement with organic growers uh, came out of that that, uh, USDA grant that Frank was talking about. And uh, there are several case studies uh, that have come out of that. We have uh, different uh, experiment station bulletins. Uh, that uh, that describe uh, the organic pest management practices for blueberries in air various fields. Uh, we have an economic analysis of, of the organic pest management strategies for blueberries. And we also uh, put out a bulletin on organic wild blueberry production. So whole management of, of wild blueberries uh, that came as an outcome of the study. And one of the, the major findings al- along the area of, of weeds is that we found that uh, using sulfur, which is, uh, and you can use uh, armory-improved organic sulfur as well, to reduce the pH uh, of the soil. And blueberries are acid-loving plants. So by reducing that pH, you, you make the environment much more favorable for blueberries and much less favorable for weeds. And when we combine that with burning, uh, which gives us some control, we found that we could uh, essentially uh, triple the blueberry organic blueberry production on the fields by uh, using a combination of uh, both of these practices. Uh, that was the, the beginning uh, of the work. Uh, Frank uh, initially uh, started 
a yearly meeting uh, with organic uh, growers on the fields uh, to discuss uh, what was going on with the project. And, and this is a tradition every year that we've uh, continued to uh, do. Uh, we meet at uh, various uh, locations around the state uh, with uh, different uh, uh, growers, uh, Anybody's interested in organic blueberry growing uh, involved in it, it's a, a great uh, way for organic blueberries to network and to keep up on, on our current practices. The next one, uh, we, we will have this on, on the Wild Blueberry website, and Mofka will send this out. But our next uh, organic blueberry meeting is going to be on Thursday, June 22nd at 1 o'clock. And this will be in Whitefield, Maine. Uh, there's a uh, organic grower Arthur Harvey, and he's uh, he's been at it even a lot longer than I have uh, in the field. So this will be our next opportunity for for growers to uh, come together. Uh, we also, after that initial uh, our project that we had on just organic, we we had another project uh, systems analysis project that the federal government uh, funded, and we looked at our organic, low, medium, and high input systems with uh, the various uh, other conventional systems having uh, higher monetary and, and scouting uh, type inputs. And one of the outcomes of that was actually the, the low input system consistently lost money, uh, but the organic system, uh, because the yields were similar to the low, uh, because of the higher returns, uh, were able to be more profitable. In fact, in a case of, of like Teresa's uh, operation where she has some uh, value-added product, could it be even more profitable than uh, the conventional systems uh, on a small scale. Uh, we have about 500 uh, blueberry growers in, in Maine and uh, about 50 organic growers, uh, but the organic production is on small farms, uh, uh, probably 10 acres farms with five acres yielding each year. And um, the, you know, they're limited uh, because of uh, inputs. Uh, you, you really physically have to uh, pull the weeds uh, instead of using chemicals. So uh, they're, they are limited to small operations. But we, we did show they can be successful and profitable. And on our uh, Wild Blueberry web website, we have a Blueberry Enterprise Budget, uh, which gives uh, a spreadsheets, interactive spreadsheets, and we have an example of organic processed uh, production, organic fresh production, and organic value-added production uh, for growers to get an idea what the, the cost, the inputs, and the returns are on that. So um, anything else you wanted to add to that, Frank? No. So uh, that's, that's my uh, initial uh, summary. Okay, Dave, that's great. And I thought that um, if you could stay on just for a second, um, <clears throat> sounds like lots of great work and research, and we can probably touch on some more of it, but I thought in terms of background for our listeners, if you would be able to maybe just speak a bit about the, the history of blueberry cultivation in the state of Maine um, and kind of where the, the current scale of the industry is, just to kind of paint that background picture, and then we can kind of hone in a bit on organic production here with our guests in the studio. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, we really have a rich history of our uh, production, wild blueberry production, Going back uh, to the to the 1800s, uh, there were experiment station reports in 1898 uh, describing blueberry production. At that point, it was more of uh, slash and burn agriculture. They went in, they burned the fields, and 
and pick the fields for four or five years. And uh, originally, it was a free pick situation. You, anybody could go out and in the fields, and after they were burned over and pick. Uh, and then uh, some individuals bought the fields, and they began charging a stumpage fee for you know if you went out, you'd have to give them a cent a pound, and blueberries were worth two or three cents a pound. Uh, you'd have to pay them for for doing that. Eventually, uh, the the blueberries were uh, put in boxes. Uh, they were shipped uh, shipped by uh, schooner uh, when the rail uh, railroads came along. They were shipped by railroads fresh uh, to Boston markets, populated areas, and so uh, eventually the uh, canneries came in. Uh, the new uh, processing uh, so that they could can the blueberries and. Uh, Blueberries in Maine were uh, were canned uh, throughout the country. They were had their labels from New York and Colorado, and they'd, they'd uh, put their labels on it. But they'd be Maine blueberries. So the Maine wild blueberry really was uh, the first blueberry uh, in the 1920s. The cultivated blueberries uh, began uh, production and breeding in in New Jersey, and they've since uh, eclipsed the the wild blueberry in Maine and, and Atlantic Canada uh, about. Uh, we're only about a third of the the blueberry production in in, in North America, uh, together with Maine and Canada. So uh, in the 40s, uh, the freezing process started. Uh, so uh, a lot of the growers, uh, uh, smaller growers, would be selling uh, their uh, berries to the to the freezers. And uh, back in uh, uh, the 20s to probably the the 60s or, or 50s. We're producing about 10 million pounds on 150,000 acres, so it was very, very low input uh, uh, culture. It was all organic back then. Uh, they they did uh, burn the fields, uh, but it wasn't until uh, the 1940s or 50s with the blueberry maggot they started using uh, insecticides to control that pest. Uh, so then it be, would be considered uh, non-organic beyond that point, but. We've seen uh, changes in the blueberry industry. Um, most of the blueberry industry used to be uh, harvested by local labor uh, by the 1970s. We had about 20 million pounds and 60,000 acres in Maine, and uh, a lot of the labor was local. Uh, but with increases in uh, weed management, pollination, irrigation, uh, we've become a much more intensively managed crop. And now we currently harvest about... Um, 100 million pounds on 44,000 acres. So we've seen a shrinking of the acreage and increasing of the production. And certainly uh, the interest in organic uh, has uh, increased over the years. Uh, we've seen uh, more uh, individuals going back to the land wanting to to grow organic. Um, issue basically is, is lower yields and uh, more intense uh, mechanical inputs to control the weeds. Uh, so you tend to be limited to smaller farms. But in the overall um, uh, numbers of growers, uh, there are quite a few organic growers, but because of the lower yields, they don't contribute to a very large proportion to the, the, the yields in Maine. So is that is that more or less uh, what you were looking for? Yeah, definitely. That's a great background and okay. <clears throat> moving through time. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we'll just take a minute here to remind listeners that this is Common Ground Radio here on WERU. And today we're talking about uh, organic blueberry production in the state of Maine. And my guests on the show today 
are Nicholas Lindholm from Blue Hill Berry Company in Penobscot and Teresa Gaffney from Highland Organics in Stockton Springs. And on the phone, we have Frank Drummond and David Yarborough, from, uh, both from the University of Maine uh, in extension up there. So I think for the next part, um, I wanted to ask our guests in the studio here to speak a little bit um, in terms of organic production, maybe give kind of an overview, Nicholas, do you think you could start with kind of the overview of the, just kind of the cultivation methods of organic blueberry production and sure. and, uh, and what you do on your farm? Yeah, uh, I'd take up a point that Frank made earlier, starting with uh, the fact that these are native plants. This is the place on earth where this genus and species evolved, came about. So we're we're really unique in that we're working with a plant in its native homeland. It's the deepest genetic diversity on earth for this species. And that's uncommon. That's not some, there, there are very few crops, especially here in the Northeast, other than raspberries and wild blueberries and cranberries. And I take that very seriously, and I use that also in uh, my educational and marketing. It's how I approach the crop. I um, want to encourage that genetic diversity. I'm an organic grower that sees the benefits of that deep diversity, and I encourage all my management practices encourage um, a, a diversity of life forms above and below the soil, and that includes everything from microorganisms and fungus in the soil to insect and even bird and animal life above, and even in, you know diversity in the ecology of the, of the plant species. Um, so, in terms of just you know hard nuts and bolts management practices, um, like Dave said, we can use sulfur to help manage the pH, and that is a very effective tool in in controlling weeds. Um, and encouraging the blueberry plants over other species. Uh, and uh, there's a benefit to um, burning or mowing in terms of breaking some weed cycles and uh, insect cycles and some other disease cycles, particularly burning. Um, and that's what I favor, though there is some uh, serious cost benefit to mowing instead of burning. So some of my fields I, I will mow, some of them I can't mow, so I still have to burn. Um, and uh, other than that, though, there's just some physical labor, like David mentioned, in terms of controlling weeds and even scouting your fields and things like that. Um, there's the chance for mechanization in harvesting if you have fields that are level enough to mechanically harvest, and some mm -hmm. organic growers, including myself, you know, take that benefit. Um, and the the marketing piece is actually what I would emphasize most, um, mm -hmm. whether it's organic or not. But for me as a farmer, marketing has always been kind of where I start and particularly where the wild blueberry industry is today. Anyone coming into it and anyone in it kind of needs to know where they're going to sell the berries, which then kind of tells you where or you know where you're going to be in terms of what you can do for inputs because you need to know how much you're going to make, therefore how much you can put into it to begin with is, mm -hmm. you know, where you start. Or That's my opinion. That's for farming, where, where you're going to sell is kind of where you start. Looking at that end there, yeah. where, where these crops are going to go. Um, okay. I thought, Teresa, I'd jump over to you a bit. Um, if you had anything to add into kind of the, the production cycles um, of your blueberry crops, um, but also maybe take a moment to speak a bit about some of the value-added pieces that you that you bring with it. Sure. 
Um, just what Dave and Nicholas have said. I mean, it's a lot of work. And when you, um, you know, kind of decide that organic wild main blueberries is where you want to set your feet, um, just know your hands need to follow too. <laughs> um, so there, we definitely do a lot of weed pulling. Um, I often will tell folks my job is to keep the forest out of the field. So I kind of look at it that way. I, I also, as I've worked with my land, um, have found places that primarily uh, just will not be blueberry. And so instead of trying to force that little piece mm -hmm. to grow wild main blueberries, um, I will take advantage of that and use it as um, kind of a pollinator plant, which I appreciate Dave's um, help in that area because we've definitely looked at um, developing pollinating uh, plants that would feed bees, um, mm -hmm. both native and um, hives and bumbles, um, being able to plant that kind of uh, food for them in those areas. So to take advantage of that. Um, but yeah, it's. I also remember early on when um, sulfur was uh, the thing to help reduce the pH. My concern was it's going to change the taste of the fruit. And Dave was um, kind enough to do a taste test up at the University of Maine to show that nobody really noticed the difference uh -huh. um, in fruit that was treated with elemental sulfur and that fruit that was not. So um, have always appreciated. Um, that um, because it was a concern. I didn't yep. want to alter the taste by using even elemental sulfur on my field. But um, through the research that Dave and Frank have both done, um, I've been able to apply those practices in our fields and, and do it pretty successfully. Um, and, you know, of course, we also have what happens in the environment lack of rain or too much cold, not enough snow, winter kill, mm -hmm. you know, insects, uh, flea beetle, you know, you know, there's lots of challenges that come when you manage your field without pesticides. And so being able to go out, scout, you know, keep an eye on how things are going, even with the blueberry maggot, um, you know, sort of my take on all of that is, well, if the, the blueberry maggot wants to eat that fruit, then so do I. And so, you know, it's sort of um, also being smart about managing that. If I've got an area that is overly wormy, I'm not going to harvest that and bring that into um, my value added or mm -hmm. even in my fresher frozen um, sales. So, um, so you know, it's, it's really understanding all of that. But it, as far as the value-added products, it's it's really um, what we've done is really looked at um, the whole plant, mm -hmm. um, looking at the fruit, but also looking at the leaves. Are the leaves of any value and, and benefit? And research that we did with the Hanron Academy chemistry class um, back in 2004 said, yes, the blueberry leaves um, were higher in anthocyanines or antioxidants than the blueberry fruit, which was the beginning of how we started our organic whole plant wild main blueberry tea. And I've just continued to develop um, not only that product, um, but how do I dry um, fruit, frozen fruit, and make it shelf-stable and make it into a yummy product? And that's where the powder and the chips and the sprinkles went uh -huh. or came from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. And then just to um, 
maybe clarification for listeners that the use of the elemental sulfur as a soil application yeah. incorporating into the soil to lower the pH. Correct. Rather than maybe something that was dusted on the berries. Um, right. So, um, well, I thought that maybe in the pollination piece, uh, some questions for Frank Drummond uh, up at the university. And I was wondering, Frank, if maybe you could just speak a bit about um, kind of just maybe pollination methods and how things are currently done, um, as well as some of the current research I know that is going on uh, in trying to improve the pollination of the blueberry crop, as well as maintaining habitat for, uh, I guess, even even native pollinators or uh, honeybees that are brought in for pollination of the crops. Uh, sure, that's um, <laughs> that's a very lengthy question, but <laughs> I'll address some of it. So, uh, we have a very rich wild native bee community associated with wild blueberries. We've documented over 120 species, and we have uh, about 275 species of wild bees in Maine, which actually sounds a lot, but as far as the United States, it's, it's one of the, the poor areas. As, as you move north, um, bee diversity drops off, but it's still a tremendous uh, <clears throat> diversity of bees, and these 120 species... Um, Many of them are highly evolved with the blueberry. So the blueberry is a, a native plant, actually several species of plants that have evolved uh, since the glaciers uh, receded. And the wild bees were there pollinating them, and so many of them are incredibly efficient. Uh, for instance, many of the queen bumblebees that are about the size of your thumb and they're out there uh, foraging on wild blueberry flowers in in mid-May to mid-June. Uh, they are about almost uh, eight or nine times more efficient than honeybees. And the way we measure that is uh, when they visit a flower and they sip nectar for their own energy and then they collect pollen to feed their young. And then when they move to the next flower they end up depositing some of that flower on the female reproductive parts of the flower as they're sipping more nectar and gathering more pollen. And in a single visit, on average, uh, a bumblebee queen will deposit about 23 grains of pollen. And a honeybee, on average, will deposit about three grains of pollen. And a blueberry flower, on average, needs about 12 grains to produce a, a fruit. But you can have some fruits you know, develop even with as few as five or six grains. But, but on average, it's about 12. And so what that means is a single visit from a bumblebee will result in a fruit. But what it means is that you might need three or four visits from an individual honeybee to that same flower to result in a fruit. Of course, the honeybees, they're not native, um, but they make up their efficiency in terms of numbers. So if there's um, 100,000 honeybees of visiting the blossoms in your field, quite often you will get those sequential numbers of visits that result in, in fruit. So it's not to say that honeybees aren't good pollinators. It's just that, you know, they're effective in the numbers game, whereas many of the native species are effective because they're highly evolved and they know how to, they know how to manipulate the flower. Um, 
But in terms of how do we enhance their numbers, so a couple of things. We have shown that what one factor that really drives the numbers of native bees that you have in your blueberry field is the landscape that surrounds your field. And the landscape that surrounds your field provides food for bees um, when blueberries aren't flowering. And that could either be really early in the season or after blueberry bloom, or it could be when blueberries, maybe they're, they're producing fruit and flowering one year, but the next year, what's called, they're, they're pruned and they grow vegetatively and there are no flowers. And so bees thrive when there's constant access to food. And so, for instance, if your blueberries uh, fields are surrounded by wetlands, old open fields, uh, edges of, of forest habitat, um, those are prime food areas for bees, whereas conifer forests generally are really poor areas. They're, they're heavily shaded. There aren't very many understory plants that flower. And so just depending on the site that your field is in can determine um, the foraging force that you might have. And so we actually are almost ready now to release uh, a software program, which is like Google Earth. And a grower can find their blueberry field on, on a map of Maine, and then it will project um, what the bee density will be based on, on the surrounding landscape of your field. And this can help growers either realize that they're in a very good area and that they may not have to buy honeybees to supplement pollination because they have a really strong native bee community. Or it might suggest to them that they might want to think about investing in honeybees. Or it might suggest to them that they might want to invest in a pollinator planting. Or as Teresa mentioned, maybe there are some areas in your field that you might want to leave in flowering resource for the bees. Um, and so... In order to provide flowering re resources, growers can do really one of two things. They can either till up some soil maybe on the edge of their field that isn't used for blueberry production and plant uh, pollinator plants. And, and we have a, an extension fact sheet on the Wild Blueberry website that discusses how you do that and, and the flowers that really do well in Maine that attract bees and provide food. And in research, we found that it takes about four years to uh, result in a payback and that a pollinator planting ranging of the size of 2 to 5% of your blueberry field will actually um, can result in an increase in, in, in fruit set and yield due to increasing native bee community. Um, but that's that's provide that re sort of requires an upfront cost to till and, and plant a pollinator planting. And another thing we've found is that along the edges of blueberry fields, that the natural wild flowering plants and weeds that are just along the edges actually provide floral resources throughout the year. And we found that, that blueberry fields that have uh, more weeds along the edges tend to have more wild bees that then end up foraging on blueberry flowers in their field. So, so 
sort of managing your edges by mowing and ensuring that those weeds and wildflowers continue to flower year after year is also a strategy that a grower could use that would be a, a lower cost strategy. So essentially, I guess an answer to your question is one can invest in honeybees. You can either rear them yourself or you can uh, rent them. If you rear honeybees yourself and your blueberry field is surrounded by coniferous forest, you may have to move them out to better bee pasture for most of the summer so they survive. Um, Or you can try to build your native bee population by providing good food and, of course, if you were a conventional grower or an organic grower that is using insecticides, you really want to minimize any kind of exposure to the bees, especially while they're foraging on the wild blueberry flowers. So I, I, I hope I sort of covered the, the, uh, the question that you asked. Yeah, definitely. That was, that was a great, um, great answer for the, for the bigger picture of pollination uh, in the issues there. So thank you. Thank you, Frank. And I'm going to take just um, a second again to remind listeners, this is Common Ground Radio, and today we are talking about organic blueberry production here in the state of Maine. Um, And I also want to be able to open up the phone lines at this point, so if any of our listeners have any questions or comments about the topic here on today's show, you can feel free to call in the toll-free number uh, is one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight, and we will welcome your questions or comments. Um, so I think moving, <clears throat> excuse me, moving forward, uh, just thinking about some of I mentioned some of the re- research that has occurred, kind of in the past in blueberries, and I thought maybe we could touch on uh, for the next few minutes some of maybe the current research that's going on and looking at some things and. Um, Nicholas, I know that you have mentioned some fertility work that you've been doing at your place, if you'd like to to speak a little to that. Yep. Uh, Four years ago, I wrote a grant proposal and it got funded through the USDA SARE program. And it's looking specifically at fertility and weed management in organic wild blueberry fields. And basically, the project uh, is looking at using wood chip mulch to control weeds. Um, And when I put the wood chip mulch down, I also put some organic fertilizer, specifically fish meal and aragonite, which is a rock powder for calcium, uh, fish meals for nitrogen. And I did that on a 16-plot replicated uh, two different applications of the fertilizer, another application of just mulch, no fertilizer, and then a control. And I've studied both the foliar nutrient uh, analysis as well as the soil nutrient analysis, and I'm studying the harvest of the fruit as well as the bricks readings, the sugar content of the fruit. And so I had a harvest in 2015, and I have the data from that, and then I have the upcoming summer 2017 harvest, which will then conclude the four-year study, but I'll have two different years' worth because each wild blueberry um, production is a two-year cycle. So at the end of this year, I will have a completed study with two years' worth of data on um, hopefully showing that one or both of those fertilizer packages in combination with the mulch um, increases yields without increasing weed activity. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so there are different combinations of the fish and aragonite that's in yes. there? Yes, yes, yeah. In so I, I base that on uh, the history of my field and the nutrient needs that the foliar samples showed me. And, and, and so I did a lot of calculations and looked at the cost, and I'm, that's part of this study, too, will be an economic analysis and enterprise budget. If, if it actually shows that you can increase your yields, is it economically viable to do so? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. How are you feeling about the results? <laughs> uh, really quite quite confident. At this point, I've seen some very positive increases in both the soil and uh, foliar um, nutrient analysis mm-hmm. with the higher rates of my fertilizer application. Um, I'm not doing a scientific study of the weed population, but just have you know my own visual look. And anecdotally, the weeds in the plots, especially those heavily fertilized plots, are not compromising the crop. Mm-hmm. They're not more weeds, just um, in, in my observation. Okay. So it's, it's, to me, it's heartening that, okay, there may be ways, and this isn't something that you're going to take any old weedy field and be able to do. I, I took the better section of my 20-year-old organic field mm-hmm. and started there. Okay. All right. How about um, a little bit on weeds, because I'm going to look over at Teresa here, because you mentioned your job being keeping the forest out of the fields. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, when you when you say that, I'm thinking that, saplings of some sort are kind of a common weed situation in the blueberry fields. Absolutely. But, but what do you see commonly out in the field? And maybe you just have to kind of scour the fields and pull by hand. Exactly. Sweet fern happens to be one of those challenging um, plants that like to live with blueberries. Mm-hmm. And so we have been, um, as we go out and try to manage those guys, um, we've tried some different things where we pull the brand new shoots, um, pull or uh, cut the plants after they've emerged, you know, about six inches, um, doing several cuttings within uh, the growing season. Um, we've also used uh, wood chips and mulch to mm-hmm. um, really uh, kind of cover over what was has been um, either hand pulled or cut or mowed. Um, and so we're hopeful to see some positive results from managing that. Uh, bracken fern is also another one that kind of likes to live with the blueberries. Um, so, you know, right now it's that's a battle that I've lost. And, uh, you know, and, and you'll... <laughs> You know, you'll wave the white flag for a minute and then you'll go back and kind of rethink and then you'll go back and try some new things. And so that's sort of what we um, uh, our approach is to different uh, problems that we find in the fields. Mm -hmm. So um, but definitely like the the trees, the willow, the poplar, um, autumn olive happens to be really uh, becoming a little more invasive into our blueberry fields. And so we have to really make sure that we get the, that particular plant out. We are growing blueberries. And don't mind the autumn olive in the wasteland. Um, yeah. uh, it happens to be a really good fruit, but I also realize the challenges, and I take that very seriously as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do. We look at the different plants that are out there. Yeah. And then the focus of the mulches is to be able to smother out exactly weeds trying to emerge. Yeah, primarily broadleaf wildflowers and grasses, things like that. Yeah, it's not going to stop raspberries or saplings or sweet fern. They'll just grow right through the mulch, as do the wild blueberries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Okay. And then I imagine the, the wood chips, or if you use straw mulch as it decomposes over time. In my study, I'm using wood chips, what they call rameal chips, mm-hmm. and it's hardwood. Um, and I created the chips by harvesting a lot of the saplings along the edges of my field to begin with. Yeah. Um, so it helps clear back old field that's regrown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I put it in about four inches deep, so it will smother you know, less competitive types of plants like grasses and um, a lot of the wildflowers. Mm -hmm. So it seems like if you're doing some soil disturbance in those areas when you're weeding, you may be encouraging some more, some new weeds to sprout at that point. And so mulching maybe afterwards would help kind of keep that that emergence down, it seems like. Absolutely. And I, you know, just watching in little areas, I can have 12 uh, 18 inches of um, mulch or whatever it is that maybe I'm using somewhere else and it happens to be living on blueberry land for a minute and within a year or two I'll see blueberries starting to come up through there so it's the, the plant is very hardy okay well it looks like we have uh, a caller on the line so we have Rich from Buxton Rich if you'd like to go ahead with your uh, question or comment Yes, thank you for taking my call. Great show. Um, you're talking a, a, about a lot of issues we deal with here, including the sweet fern, um, which is really something. So we bought this property four years ago, and on the edge of our woodlot, we um, discovered a bunch of uh, blueberry plants, which we've been trying to nurse along and get fruit out of. They also had started a Christmas tree farm on this um, property uh, 25 years ago and then moved away. We had a blueberry uh, pick-your-own guy come by one day and say that um, the witch's broom that we're seeing in the fir trees is actually bad for the blue, uh, the blueberry patch. And I was wondering if maybe you could comment and um, let us know, do we need to cut down all of our fir trees? Uh, or what, what, is there a solution for this? Okay. Um, do you think, could we direct that question uh, to Dave Yarborough on the phone here? Is there... Some research there behind the witch's broom in fir trees causing issues? Um, the fir trees are a secondary host of, of the witch's broom disease, so that means the, the pathogen or the spores uh, travel back and forth. Uh, the problem is is that the spores can travel a considerable distance, and I, I seriously doubt you can cut down uh, enough balsam fir trees to, to make a difference. Uh, with the with the with the wild blueberries, we have a two-year pruning cycle, and even if those plants get infected, uh, the plants are being pruned back. If you had something like a cultivated blueberry that uh, would the, the the stem would be there multiple years, the stems get infected, uh, and then they then they see the, the witch's broom growth. So, the question would be: Are 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 they seeing any witch's broom broom growth in their blueberry fields? And if they are. Are they, are they pruning every other year? So maybe they need to uh, increase the frequency of the pruning cycle in order to take that out. Because in, in the high bush plants, what you would go in and do is uh, just cut, cut the, the witch's broom down the stem below that. It, it is a systemic disease. Once it gets into the blueberries, it's in there. So um, I think uh, that really the management of the two-year cycle seems to... Uh, take care of uh, the witch's broom on, on most of the fields I've seen. Yeah, and I, I probably would add that the from my experience in my field, the witch's broom has never been a major 
problem. And like Dave alluded to, you know, because it does go into a prune cycle, I'm not seeing, um, you know, problems coming up in, in that mm-hmm. prune cycle and, and then in the subsequent um, harvest years. I, it just has never been a major deal. Okay me to concentrate on uh, it sounds like this gentleman is having an issue though and definitely needs to deal with it the regular pruning which is every other year you get one year's harvest and then you kill all the above ground plants that's basically mm-hmm. what you're doing either by burning or mowing that's that's an important tool for the mm-hmm. organic wild blueberry producer because it controls not only diseases like that but it breaks weed cycles mm-hmm. and, you know especially burning can just destroy some weed seeds and yes. some plants like uh, even softwood like balsam fir or pine tree saplings will be killed by burning um, so there's lots of technique to that regular pruning that you will benefit okay. a lot and Rich, I think you're still on the line there. Did that help help answer your question with the witch's broom? Just to clarify, we, we haven't seen a problem yet in our blueberries, but you know, like I said, um, somebody who grows them locally had, had come by and just commented that they shouldn't be in such close proximity. But it sounds like if we were to follow the pruning guidelines, that we'd be okay anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, that seems to be the recommendation from our our grower guests here in the studio today. So, and I'm, um, and I'm sorry, I tuned in late, so you may have already covered it. Did you talk about pruning already? Uh, no, but I think that I was just going to ask for a little clarification on the prune cycle. Okay, and, um, I'll get off the line and let you guys talk. Okay, thank you, thank you Rich. Um, which I thought I would just ask for clarification because we've talked about the two-year cycle, but maybe... Mm-hmm. Nicholas, would you just explain what happens this yeah, year, what happens so next? So the wild blueberry plant is actually about 70% of the plant itself is underground. Maybe Dave and Frank could actually confirm 70% or so. But anyway, the, the underground part of the plants are primarily a root system and what's called a rhizome, which is, you know, in layman's terms, kind of an underground branch. And so destroying the plant above ground, you're only destroying about 30% of the actual plant, and all the energy reserves of the plant are underground. So it's a type of plant like other uh, fruiting crops like strawberries or raspberries, which can send up new growth and wants to send up new growth. Mm -hmm. And so when you destroy above ground that 30% of the plant, everything below just has new energy and new growth and so that through time we've just found regular pruning and for the wild blueberry commercial Mm -hmm. growers that's every other year Um, you get this new growth with a higher set of fruit and therefore a higher yield and any subsequent year you're going to continue to have some fruit but again on a commercial scale that is if you're trying to sell you're you're farming the crop and trying to make money doing it Mm -hmm. you need that regular Um, highest potential yield. Um, But again, I'll just emphasize the importance of breaking weed, disease, and pest cycles too. Um, And so the two common techniques are burning or mowing. Mm -hmm. Um, Here in the Blue Hill area, I have a lot of fields that are too hummocky, too stony, too hilly to be able to mow. Mm -hmm. And so I still spread straw and burn that way. Though you can also use oil, even under organic um, standards you can use an oil burner to burn the plants but again the the idea is that you're destroying all the plant above ground so you get that new growth from underground mm-hmm. and then that whole process whether you're burning would take care of insects and or pathogens um, certain ones certain i mean ones. again frank and dave have been my my resource for the science and what uh, specifically you may or may not be controlling through mowing and or burning mm-hmm. you may be encouraging something else to flush up maybe in population 
Is that yeah, possible? though I don't think there's any detrimental okay. e- effects. Okay. So you would choose the mowing or the burning really based on the terrain possibly of where your crops are. Yeah, I I definitely uh, take advantage of the spreading of the straw and burning as well, and we'll use propane torches to start, and uh, obviously the straw will, if it's hopefully thick enough, will carry the flame. Carry a flame, but it will be a hot enough burn, which is important. Dave has talked a lot about how um, that heat is really needed. Um, you can have a light burn that may not produce as well um, mm-hmm. for that field as a hotter burn. Okay. Well, it looks like we do have another caller. We have Yo from Tremont on the line. If you'd like to go ahead with your your comment or question. Good morning. I wondered if you could go into a little more detail about burning in particular, if there's a time of year or a time of the moon or certain conditions that are best or just sort of overall burn safety versus effectiveness on a very rough, rocky soil. Thank you for putting on this program and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Okay, thanks for the question. I think we'd pass this over to uh, Dave on the phone there, if you could maybe speak about the the timing of the burn in the in the blueberry fields, and then just with an eye on the clock, we are getting into the final four or five minutes of the show. Certainly, CJ. Thank I'd you. like to um, historically the the fields were burned, and and that was because the fields were uneven and rocky. A lot of the conventional fields have uh, rocks pulled out in land level, and that's because what that burning does it burns the plant right back to the to the ground to the surface. So if you were go going to cut and you'd cut the plants at three to four inches, you'd still have some above ground growth, and that above ground growth would continue to grow, and you wouldn't get the new the new growth from the the rhizomes or underground stems coming up. Uh, from the plant. And this is more juvenile growth, uh, the buds. You do have that fallow year, and it's very effective in disrupting insect disease and weed cycles. And it's when it's very unique uh, in, in cropping systems and, and to, to the wild blueberries. Uh, generally, when you prune plants, you want to prune them when they're dormant. And that would be uh, later in the fall after the, the leaves drop off. You get the, the, the rest of the nutrients coming from the leaves back into the rhizomes or in the spring before the growth resumes. If you prune any other time when the plants are active, you're taking away active growth from the plant and setting, setting that plant back. So dormant pruning. And certainly, uh, you know, uh, with burning, uh, the issue with burning is, is the expense. It, it does have the added benefit of sanitation uh, disease or insects that are in the soil litter would be controlled, something like the, the blueberry fruit fly, the, the pupers several inches in the soil uh, certainly would not be controlled. So uh, the, really, when you're burning, the, the issue is uh, keeping the fire on your field and not getting into the woods or somebody else's field. So having that back burned, mm-hmm. having sufficient people out there with backpacks and, and uh, you know, getting, getting your, uh, you know, burning the permit of the field, Getting your uh, permit, uh, certainly you do need uh, uh, from the fire warden a permit for burning. Um, so all those are considerations. And it is, uh, it, it, it is even with straw, there's a lot of labor on, on, on um, spreading that, but uh, getting the right conditions that's not too wet uh, so that you do get a good burn is uh, essential. So I think that sums up the burning 
Okay. All right. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Dave. And um, we are getting into the kind of final couple minutes here, and uh, I just wanted to give Teresa and Nicholas in the studio here just a, a moment to maybe pitch their product, so to speak, but to think if someone was interested in catching them more or um, uh, get more information about blueberries for educational purposes, mm-hmm. um, how could someone get in contact with you, Teresa? I have a website. It's called a taste of wild Maine. Com, and my phone number is on my website, and I'm happy to have conversations with folks, or they can email me. My email address is there as well, so and they can learn more about my value-added products there as well. Okay. And, Nicholas, if people are looking to get in contact with you? Yeah, for me, the easiest way, again, is uh, the website that I have, and that's bluehillberry.com. And I do uh, consult with people who are answer questions, if there's um, folks with blueberry fields and want advice, that sort of thing. But I also put people right on to the Humane Extension website okay. where Dave and Frank can maybe give that because there's excellent resources there, Absolutely. both in cultural management and, as uh, Dave mentioned, the, or maybe Frank mentioned, the economic analyses and the inter- enterprise budgets. Mm-hmm. Excellent information on their website. Okay. And then could you um – Dave or Frank, whoever's got the phone handy, uh, just give out that website for the extension resources for any of our listeners to follow up. Sure. I've got, I've got it uh, fairly easy, uh, wildblueberries.main.edu. All right. So if you type that into your browser, uh, that there's should... fact sheets, uh, organic section, as well as conventional as well. Okay. All right. Well, we're getting right to the end of the show. I'd like to thank our guests, Nicholas Lindholm, Teresa Gaffney, and Frank Drummond and David Yarborough for joining us today to talk about uh, wild organic Maine blueberries. And this has been Common Ground Radio, which is heard the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. here on WERU. And uh, I'd like to thank Amy Brown for engineering the show today. And stay tuned for On the Wing. Support for WERU comes from two 